It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we are heading into part four of our series on spiritual lessons uh, from Alfred the Great. Uh, if you've missed the first three episodes, this would be speaking to those in a, on the podcast. Uh, I highly recommend the first three, just as a foundation uh, for where we're going. Uh, in It's a very unique time period of history that is, I think, intriguing to some and somewhat repulsive to others. And so it's a, it's a delicate time period to convey, sort of that Middle Ages, Dark Ages time period of knights and fair maidens, you know, so it has some certain romantic qualities, but it's a lot of barbarism and it's a lot of evil uh, that we're going to see in this time period. Uh, And oftentimes we don't associate Christianity with this time period for whatever reason. I mean, dark ages, we just figure everything's lost. And yet there's going to be these strains of uh, light that are going to come through. And that's what we see in the story, which is one of the reasons why it's so attractive to me is the story of Alfred the Great is like a light shining in the midst of darkness. And it's, uh, it's, it's very profound, especially for the time in which we live. And I think you'll, you'll see that as we progress through this particular message, which is called the Saltwater Bandits. Uh, Hudson thought that sounded a little like something from, I think there was, in the Home Alone, there was like the uh, Wet Bandits or something like that. So that is, has no inference to that whatsoever. Uh, but the Saltwater Bandits is a, is a way of describing uh, the Vikings. And so we're going to go into that, and that's probably one of the uh, aspects of this time period that most of us might be more familiar with than others. But here's Winston Churchill uh, reflecting uh, back upon this time period. He says, when we reflect upon the brutal vices of these saltwater bandits, pirates as shameful as any whom the sea has borne, or recoil from their villainous destruction and cruel deeds, we must also remember the discipline, the fortitude, the comradeship, and martial virtues which made them at this period, beyond all challenge, the most formidable and daring race in the world. Uh, So, you know, you have different periods of time where different people groups are going to rise up and dominate. And, you know, like the Romans, uh, the Greeks, they had their seasons, and this is the season of the Vikings, which is somewhat fascinating, I think, in our minds. It's a rather obscure uh, troop of people uh, with very uh, gaudy and demonstrative clothing and attitudes and behavior. So it's intriguing uh, at a certain level, but uh, these are some very evil uh, men, and this was a very godless uh, system, and they hated Christianity. And so Christianity had attempted to uh, move its way through the world, and uh, up into the Scandinavian region, it had not uh, quite proven successful. And so these uh, raiders, these saltwater bandits, hated Christianity. So it's a very malevolent uh, evil that we see uh, beginning to uh, come after uh, the, the Christian world. So Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, the Vikings were Scandinavian men who traveled on trading and raiding expeditions, mostly in the North Atlantic, acquiring wealth for their respective homelands in the territories known today as Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. It was the Danish Vikings, sometimes called the Northmen, who were particularly active during the 9th and 10th centuries in the British Isles. So, and I've said this before, but my whole uh, makeup uh, is somewhat 
at odds within myself. Uh, I'm German, so when I was teaching on uh, World War II, that was somewhat of a complexity. Uh, my middle name being Winston, so I'm a big Winston Churchill fan, so I have this British side of me uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of German uh, sides. So I'm like a mix between uh, Swiss, Swedish, and German. So I even have Swedish in me, and my name's a Viking name, Eric. And so you know, I have a, a lot of tension going on inside of me, and I'm quoting Winston Churchill, Winston, which is my middle name, speaking about the Vikings. So uh, that's uh, sort of the life of Eric Ludi. And, you know, there's something profound about that as I've gone through this. First of all, it seems to give me, uh, like, the free pass to talk about all sides, you know, because I seem to be this melting pot of all sides in this. But, you know, I'm a fan of the light. And in each of these situations, even like when I'm studying Great Britain, and I'm, I'm a fan of Great Britain, right? But I didn't choose to speak of it from an American vantage point. I, I, I taught on World War II from uh, Winston Churchill's vantage point, which was a very unique thing to do since I'm American. And there's so many different lenses that we oftentimes don't wear. And even to stick on the Viking uh, lens as you go through this is very intriguing. I mean, if you grew up in a godless society and that's all you knew, how would you desire uh, someone who knew Christ to treat you and someone who actually knew the truth that you had never been exposed to? If your dad and his dad and his dad after him hated Jesus and looked at it as one of the greatest threats to their civilization, and that's what you grew up in, how would you prefer uh, to have someone approach you. And so when, when you see Alfred the Great, and I don't want to give anything away, but that's one of my favorite things about the story is how Alfred the Great is going to treat these godless people, knowing that they have never heard the truth. And so as a result, you're going to see a completely different lens than most of us would ever even think of wearing. So that's just a Viking ship, you know, it sort of gives you the feeling, not that it has anything to do with our message, but you know, we're talking about the Vikings, we might as well stick a Viking ship in there. The invasion of the four evils. So in this country, in this past year, so it's been a, a year and what, about three months or so uh, since we had something strike our shores. And it's not that it hadn't been knocking uh, on this country long before that. A lot of what took place this last year, we had seen in small regard uh, over the past decades. It's the same thing with the Viking invasion. They would do little raids, you know, on shorelines and leave real quick. And then suddenly in 865, they are going to come in mass and to stay. And in a sense, that would be a good description of this last year. And so when we were going through this last year, I was attempting to sort of wrap my mind around what I was seeing and what it was that was coming in. Because in, in a strange way, I felt like the church went silent last year. And you're sort of waiting for someone from the church to wax eloquent about what's going on in the world and sort of give clarity to it. And you sort of felt like it was muffled. And part of that is because the media was not portraying anything uh, that would have to do with truth. And that's the way I would look at it. It's sort of like anything that had to do with truth and perspective on what was going on you could not say. And so as a result, we felt like we were in this weird fog bank uh, last year. I, I used the term dizzied uh, last year. We were dizzied as the church. We, we didn't even have our balance. Uh, so many churches weren't even gathering. And so as a result, the normal flows of communication were absent. 
And so as long as everyone's in lockdown and no one has communication with one another, we are very, very vulnerable in such a situation. And so we saw this encroachment. First thing that we saw mid-March of last year was the encroachment of fear. Fear has always been there, okay? Many of you would attest to that. Yeah, I had it my whole life. However, this is a whole different sort of fear. This is the fear that was very irrational. Uh, so we have this thing called you know, COVID-19, the pandemic. I think it was called the coronavirus at that time. And that's, that was our breakout of uh, toilet paper shortage. That, and everyone was responding in a hyper-fearful way. What's interesting about that is the history of our nation is such that fear was always a negative attribute. And the fearless were always the applauded. Something happened in March of last year which made fear hip and cool. And if you didn't fear the virus, you were part of the problem. And it was the weirdest flip that we saw. So we actually saw an invitation to fear in our nation. It's like, no, come on in. We have opened our shorelines to you. We now accept fear. Whereas up to that point, I would say our nation had a correct view on fear. It's a bad thing. And then suddenly it became a good thing. And when you start to side with fear, you are siding against God, who time and time again is going to give a clear commission, do not fear. And so as a result, what we did is we sided with something that we had never sided with before as a nation. Uh, and so when I say the invasion of four evils, I'll give, I'll give you four. Fear, violence, and murder. You see, our country is not necessarily, we, we have a murder rate and we have violence, yes, but it's sort of isolated. I don't know if you guys remember last year what happened over the summer. We had the George Floyd incident and then we had this breakout and it was almost like this justified breakout and the government backed off and allowed for some of the worst things to take place in our country. Again, it was a welcoming of something. Where it's just like, hey, you know what, this is good. It, this, this sort of violence is actually good. Tearing down statues, spray painting things. But it was like a murderous venom uh, that we saw. And for instance, uh, the pre, and I'm not getting political here. I'm just giving uh, things that have happened over the past years. When, when Trump was elected, we saw a change of uh, rhetoric, the way people spoke. And I'm not even going to say Trump wasn't a big part of the reason, but the, it was sort of like, your enemies, you desire them to die now. You don't just desire them not to get elected. You desire them dead. And so the death threats, the amount of statements that were saying people wanted Trump dead. They wanted to murder Trump. They wanted assassinations on Trump. That's just not healthy communication. What we saw this last year was sort of the onrush of that, where it's just like, kill the, the opponents, kill those that are of an opposite ideology. We want them dead. We want all of you dead that think like this. That is a very new, uh, now I'm not saying it's, it hasn't been around, but it, at that level of intensity, just like fear, yeah, fear has been around, but this is a whole new level. Uh, deception. Uh, we've, we've had deception in this country for a long time. This is a whole new layer of it where literally a cloud, a fog bank has covered our country. And if, if I were to say, could you give me accurate data on what's really going on out there, like with COVID-19? What do we know about masks? Do they work? We don't, all these things, we have no idea. Scientifically, suddenly we don't feel like we have scientific data. We feel like we have imaginary 
data or whatever is correct data. And so as a result, we don't even know what to respond to. Is this really dangerous or not? The vaccine, do we really understand its long-term effects or not? And so it, confusion. So deception, when you start to bring in false reports and it's proven false, but then it maintains its status as true, it makes it very difficult for anyone to know how to function. Do we believe anything now? And so do we believe anything that comes out of the news? Do we believe any scientific data anymore? Very unique time period to live in. Apathy and passivity. The whole while all this is happening, it's like, hey, none of my business. And so as a result, we have the church that's in a sense sitting on its thumbs in the very time when it needs to be rising up. But if, if I were to say, what should we do to rise up? Most of us have no clue including me. I mean, all this last year, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to rise up and do something. I have no idea what to do. I can pray, but I don't know what to practically do. And anyone that does practically do something usually ends up in some hot water and some trouble, and we're like, I don't want to be like them. And so as a result, it creates a paralysis. So I'm going to call this the invasion of the four evils. And it's interesting because we go back in time to 865 AD, and we're going to have an invasion of four evils uh, uh, upon the island of Britain. Bjorn Ironside, Vitserk, Sigurd the Snake Eye, and Ivar the Boneless. There's one thing about the Vikings that's sort of fun is they have some great nicknames. Uh, their dad, his name is uh, Ragnar Harry Breaches. That's his nickname, is Harry Breaches. I mean, can you think of a, uh, a more ugly, detestable uh, description than that? Uh, but uh, these guys are going to invade, and these guys want revenge. They want revenge, and even the people in uh, the island of Britain don't really understand what's going on. It's like, what's your issue? They want revenge. There's a legendary story of what happened to their father over on this island when he invaded earlier. Of course, Ragnar is invading, right? He's a scoundrel, he's a saltwater pirate, and he's coming in and invading, and he dies when he comes over, and the, the, his sons are now mad. You know, we're gonna wreak revenge on you. Could you imagine how hard that would be? It's like, hey, we're just trying to defend our own country, and you know, you bad guys come over, and now he dies when he's coming over, but now we need to have Viking revenge upon us, and that's exactly what's happening. So the hairy breaches. So I'm going to go through the hairy breaches in two different ways. I almost called this message the hairy breaches, but I didn't know. <laughs> it's just such a fun term. Uh, and it's very meaty, too, because I, I, as I've described before, the idea of a castle, see, the breaches, I'm guessing they're talking about here are like pants, right? But there's also an, another uh, form of a breach, and that is a hole in the wall like a, of a fortress. So if we had a breach in the... Uh, in this building, it would be like uh, the door is open, you know, and you have all these uh, uh, bad guys out there that are trying to get in, and, and the door is left open. Oh, no, we got a breach, and so we need to close the breach. And so it's a hole. It's an access point that you're, you don't want to have. And so that's why I'm thinking this could, that would have been a great name is for this message is the hairy breaches, uh, because that's what they are. They're hairy breaches to us. It's like, oh, no, uh, because the enemy is encroaching in and through our vulnerabilities in and through our open doors. So the hairy breach is back in 865. Well, actually, this is a little before 865 at first. So here's Winston Churchill's rendition of it. There's multiple 
renditions of this story, okay, if you, if you look it up. In Viking legend, at this period, none was more famous than Ragnar Lodbrok or Harry Breaches. He was born in Norway, but was connected with the ruling family of Denmark. He was a raider from his youth. West overseas was his motto. So he's going to run into some problems. He's going to invade Paris. He's going to be repelled. He's going to come back to his homeland. He's looking for something to busy himself with, so he's going to go after the island of Britain. He turned his mobile arms against Northumbria. Northumbria, if you remember, is that upper area sort of near Scotland in old uh, Britain. Here again, his fate was adverse. According to Scandinavian story, he was captured by King Ale of Northumbria and cast into a snake pit to die. Amid the coiling mass of loathsome adders, he sang to the end his death song. So all Vikings have a death song, I guess, that when they're dying, they sing. Uh, that's sort of creepy. The whole, everything about the Vikings is very creepy. I'll just say it that way. Ragnar had four sons, and as he lay among the venomous reptiles, he uttered a potent threat. The little pigs would grunt now if they knew how it fares with the old boar. So that's like his famous quote. And, you know, for most of us, we're like, eh, whatever that means. <laughs> but the little pigs are the four sons, and the old boar is Ragnar. And if they knew, if they knew what was happening to their father, they would seek revenge. That's basically what you're going to see. And so this is, you know, the legend uh, that comes out of it. So the skalds, that's like the poets or the... Uh, the, the tale, tale tellers uh, in uh, the Viking lore. The skalds tell us how his sons received the news. Bjorn Ironside gripped his spear shaft so hard that the print of his fingers remained stamped upon it. Vitserk was playing chess, but he clenched his fingers upon a pawn so tightly that the blood started from under his nails. Sigurd Snake Eye was trimming his nails with a knife and kept on paring until he cut into the bone. But the fourth son was the one who counted, Ivar the Boneless, demanded the precise details of his father's execution, and his face became red, blue, and pale by turns, and his skin appeared puffed up by anger. Ooh. All right, so it, everything about these guys is, is really bad. In fact, I am trimming out basically 99% of everything that I could tell you about the Vikings. I know for some of you are like, what? Because it is so unhelpful uh, to our souls. Uh, it does not edify whatsoever. It's intriguing to the mind, but it doesn't build us up spiritually. And the only goal I have for this is not to just entertain it's to show how Jesus works in our life. And I don't know that we need to do a lot of study on the devil and his demons and his demonic antics to know that they're just bad. <laughs> and I don't want us to fixate upon the Vikings. Uh, and that's a, it's, it's always a temptation to focus and fixate on the evilness of evil. But I just want to be very guarded against that. And so as a result, it's like trim, cut. Trim, cut, trim, cut. Oh, it all went. Where did it all go? It's the same thing I dealt with in World War II. If you go through World War II, you're going to notice that I'm going to skip, I'll mention multiple times, but I'm going to skip the eastern front of the battle, which is against Stalin against Hitler, because there is nothing redeeming about it. It's evil against evil, and they're going to butcher millions of men. And I cannot find one redeeming thing to teach anyone out of that other than evil is evil, Let's not allow it into our life, you know, because there's just nothing redeeming in it, and it is disgusting. Hitler's antics, I'm going to go into the Holocaust, but when I cover it, I'm going to show how Christians responded to it. I'm not just going to teach you about a Holocaust. 
because evil is evil, and it does not edify us to meditate upon the devil's evil, his antics, but we need to know as a Christian how to respond to evil. We need to recognize it's out there, and it desires to destroy us, but we need to make our focus and our fixation Jesus Christ. So we have evils that are encroaching upon us, and it is ugly, it is dark, it is mean. What are we supposed to do about it? The hairy breaches in our lives. So we have hairy breaches in our lives. We have an enemy that is waiting to enter. It's, it's interesting, it's sometimes hard to describe how the kingdom of heaven works in God is, you know, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is, doesn't participate in darkness. So then why is it that things like evil spirits get sent to Saul? You know, the classic theological questions. How does this work? You see, the devil is leaning against, sort of like what we see here. He desires to destroy Christendom. He hates it. When men are demonically inspired, which the Vikings were, when we get into the berserker gangs, uh, that's exactly what they were. They were demon-possessed men going into battle. It is weird. And when you get into that, you recognize this is like their great weapon is demon possession. And guess what? It did give superhuman strength. It did give superhuman outcomes. And so they're putting their confidence in Satan to win their battles. Okay, you have a light and a dark uh, that are going on here. This is like, this is a very serious thing. And so in this process, we need to recognize that we have a, a vulnerability if we do not walk in the light. So to the degree that we stand firm in, in truth, the enemy cannot access us. There is a wall of fortification. Our great secret of strength is faith in Christ, dependence. And if we are convicted of sin and we just say, yes, Lord, and we correct, then there is an impermeable barrier. But if we are convicted and we ignore, it's like the opening of a door. And the devil is constantly testing walls. He's like, why? Well, walk around it again. Hey, test it one more time. Hey, I found something. And if the enemy finds something, here's just a tactic of the enemy. So say he finds a breach in your life. He'll go report it. And he's like, we got one. North side, uh, <clears throat> pretty good sized. We can get uh, quite a few troops through there. So one of the tactics of the enemy, and of course they didn't have... Uh, hand grenades back in the days of uh, Alfred the Great. But let's just imagine, this is like what the enemy loves to do. He loves to find one of your breaches, one of your openings in the wall, take a hand grenade, pull the pin on it, roll it into your life, and then disappear. Like, sort of get behind the wall again. It goes off. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to whisper in through the crack. He's going to say, can you believe God did that to you? And yet, what is happening? You see, God is supplying you protection. Your disobedience is actually what opens you up to the enemy. God's not, not shoving the enemy into your life. He just can't supply protection to you in that area when you walk in disobedience. It's like you're willfully opening a door. He put that door in your care. You left it open. And as a result, you're getting all sorts of little rascally critters in your life. And so the results of disobedience are the ramifications of that which is outside coming inside. And that which is outside is very evil.
So Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 52, this is the exact same concept. Now, I want you to realize that you almost feel like we're talking to Britain here because uh, Britain's a strong Christian nation in the 400s. And then the Romans are going to exit uh, and the Roman Empire is going to begin to collapse and we're going to see the Angles and the Saxons come in as ironically barbarians, Vikings-like uh, characters, and take this island. And there's going to be a Christianization of these barbarians. And however, there's always a warning against to God's people to say that if you turn from this, if you turn from my ways, then this is what's going to happen. Listen to the description. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. And that's going to happen to Israel. And ironically, that's happened to probably every other nation that espoused Christ, that turned away from Christ throughout the ages. There's something about the preservation, the protection of truth, that when you forsake it, it's, you know, it, it really hurts. It's, it's an uncomfortable uh, reality that many of us in our life, now I'm, instead of looking at it at a national level, let's look at it as an individual level. You've been strong in your Christian walk. And then you begin to stop guarding. You begin to stop watching your thoughts. You begin to stop watching your behavior. And so it's subtle compromise at first. And then it becomes bigger compromise. Compromise, small compromise untended, just grows. It, like, it begets greater compromise. And that compromise begets even greater compromise. Compromise grows in momentum. And the only way to stop it is repentance. And so as a result, when we live untended, ultimately, this is our life. The shorelines of our life are invaded. And an evil that we never spoke before in our life, that's not our language. I don't, I don't speak that language, is going to come in and speak through us. And we will shock the people closest to us and say, this isn't you. This isn't you. What happened to you? <laughs> and that's, of course... Great storyline for many movies, you know, where people's lives fall apart and then they have to be rebuilt and they have a rocky recovery scene and there's repentance and, and there's something good hopefully in the end, right? But many of us in here have tasted this storyline. In other words, where we have been close to Christ and then we have diminished, we have lost that guardedness to our life and the enemy came in like a saltwater bandit. So the main thing I want us to be sensitized to at first is the enemy is leaning in to study us. He desires to destroy us, and the greatest threat on all the earth and globe for the enemy is a serious Christian. So to the degree that you are serious about Jesus, he's very serious about you. You see, he, only, he has limited demonic powers, uh, and we've, we've covered this in past, but I don't know if we've covered it in this series that Satan is going to get one-third of the angelic host. That means he has, it's, it's, a, it's a finite number, it's divisible by three. And the enemy is going to get one portion of it, one-third, and, and that means God is left with double what the enemy has. So God has double the angels. The, the enemy has limited resource. 
Some of us think he has infinite resources just probably because he talks to us a lot about how powerful he is. But we need to realize he can't spend it, just, can't just send a million demons against you. If he does, he doesn't have them from over here. He has to strategically allocate his resource. And so to the degree that you are a threat, he will spend his resource. And to the degree that he feels it will be beneficial, he will spend his resource. He's a cunning strategist. And so as a result, if you are a nominal threat, he's not going to spend his resources. He'll let the flesh work on you. The flesh is, is already at work in all of us. So he'll just let the flesh be the issue. He's not going to try and send, send some of his demonic host to you. He'll just sort of threaten you from a distance. But to the degree that you're a challenge, he'll spend resource on you. And I know at first it's sort of like, I don't want resource spent on me. You do want resource spent on you. Actually, that's, if you're living a healthy Christian life, you want the enemy to have to waste his resource to try and stop you. It's one of the best services you could do to the Christian church around you is take some of the blow upon yourself. In other words, your life should matter in hell. When you wake up in the morning, there should be red alerts going off in hell. He's awake or she's awake. That's precisely what you want in your life, but you need to remember how to live. You need to be clothed in an armor, and that armor should have no chinks in it. You need to be able to walk through this life with confidence in Christ, which means you have to walk with integrity. So the enemy wants to stop that, which is why it's important not to have <clears throat> hairy breaches, not to have holes in the wall that the enemy can play you with. And so when Leslie and I went through this, oh, however many years ago uh, that was, it's about basically the age of Harper. So uh, Harper's 14 now. Uh, and so we went through this, it was like a crisis in our life where we were front lines ministry and we were living boldly for Jesus, but we had allowed some compromise in. And, you know, in our times of leisure, we would turn to pop culture entertainment and we would just sort of open ourselves up to some rather, uh, use the word salty, it fits with the saltwater bandits, the salty types of things in our life that you know, they weren't as bad as this, but they definitely weren't the kingdom of heaven. And what we would meditate upon, what we would take in, and we didn't even think anything of it. But there were all sorts of little things like this. When Les and I were first married, we would, uh, we didn't even watch movies our entire uh, love story. We didn't even watch a movie. Well, we watched one. We watched the end of Anne of Green Gables. Uh, of, I think it was the end of Anne of, Anne of Avonlea, you know, where Gilbert and Anne kiss on the bridge. It's really beautiful. Uh, that's all we saw. And that was just because my family was watching it when we came in one night. And so we had, in a sense, preserved ourselves from all of that. And then when we got married... It was like, hey, you know, it'd be sort of fun to uh, get a movie and sit down and watch it. Sounds romantic. And so we went to the Blockbuster video, and uh, they had this section of movies for a dollar. And they're like family, boring movies that no one else wanted, you know, like all the old Disney movies. And, all. They, were, and they, weren't, they were so pure, right? Everything about it. And so we started doing that. And, you know, there's only like, 50 of them on the whole stand, and after that, you know, you, you need to start venturing into the other sections. And so it was just fascinating when we begin to look back at how the encroachment came into our life and the subtle justifications that take place, 
because we had a higher level of accountability than anyone I knew. I would go to the counter to check out and someone would say, oh, are you, are you the guy that wrote the book? And then here's my videos in front of them. It's like, so I mean, I took it very seriously. Whatever I'm checking out, I need to make sure that it represents what I stand for, right? And so my level of compromise in my mind was like, this is, I'm fine standing there next to that video. And God's like, well, what if you were standing next to me, like in my throne room coming into my holy of holies? Would you feel comfortable bringing that in? Well, but I'm down here. <laughs> and so God had to bring this to the surface show there were hairy breaches in Eric and Leslie's life. And it was one of the most important things we walked through. We, and I, I think I mentioned the other day that we called it the sacred list. And we created a front and back list and we like, God, these things need to close. These are open windows. These are open doors. This is why the enemy is hounding us right now. And we had all sorts of health problems. We had all sorts of financial problems, all sorts of various things. And God just began to show us, it's like, close the windows, close the doors. You are standing boldly for truth with open doors and open windows. And you want to know why you're getting eaten for lunch, why your, why your crops are getting devoured. They shall besiege you at all your gates. This is a continuation of that same statement. Until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. So in other words, live in the truth. Live in the light where he is in the light. And stay close to Jesus. Don't, don't walk away. Leave the door open. That which is outside comes in. Used this illustration the other day, but it's worth repeating. Uh, when I was teaching this to my kids, I was in our living room, and we have a sliding door that goes to the outside. And so I was pacing a circle around them, and I was, talk I was trying to teach them fortification. And so I, and I think it was really windy and cold outside at the time, and it's not now uh, here. But, and I said, if, if we open that door right now, what would happen in here? It would get cold. That's right. But if we keep it closed, you know, it's going to be 69 degrees in here. This is really nice. The moment you open that, the wind that is outside comes in here. The snow that is outside comes in here. We wake up in the morning. It's cold, even though it's not supposed to be. And there's a snowdrift here. We can say, God, what? How could you allow a snowdrift into our house? It's not like he's allowing it in. The snow's trying to get in. It's we opened up to it. And the natural ramifications of opening up to an outside world and saying, hey, come in and do as you see fit, is that the Vikings come in. The Vikings are looking for territory. That's what they're looking for. And so the moment that you begin to turn away from God, which is going to happen to the island of Britain, the moment they're going to say, hey, we're fine. They're, all, they're squabbling with each other. You know what their entire military system was not built to defend against Vikings? It was bent, it was built to defend against other Saxons who would try and creep across their lines and take their stuff. This is our crop. You can't take it. It was all inner fighting uh, within the nation itself. That's how they were built. Their entire military infrastructure was set up that way. So when the Vikings attacked, they had no capacity to defend against it. To leave the door open and that which is outside comes in. So if you want to deal with that which is outside and make sure it doesn't come in, what do you do? Close the breaches. Winston Churchill says, many years later, so this is in 865. Do you guys remember the Ragnar showed up and, you know, he died in a snake pit? Mm -hmm. 
So now, many years later, in 865, Ragnar's little pigs landed on the shores of East Anglia on the southeast coast of modern England. The East Anglian king, King Edmund, quickly sought peace for his kingdom from the Vikings and found it could be purchased, though, it, though its cost would be far greater than Edmund bargained for. So as we progress, I'm going to teach you about something called the Danegeld. And it'll make sense as we move forward, but it's a purchase. It's for money, you can get the Vikings to leave you alone. And I'm just going to say this up front, it's not a good idea, okay? It sounds really good on paper. You know, it's like, so all we have to do is like pay you and you'll leave us alone? And that's what Edmund is thinking, okay? So it's like, you just want some money? Yeah, give us money. So he gives them money and they strangely linger uh, in the area. So East Anglia is that yellow block over there, just to give you some context of where they are coming in. And they're going to head up to Northumbria, which is where their dad, Harry Breaches, died in a snake pit. And it's time for revenge. So this is the big movement upon uh, the islands uh, to start out. They'd, they'd been doing small raids, but now we're going to have the big hit. Ragnar's sons restrained their armies from pillaging the East Anglian kingdom. As long as the East Anglians supplied food and all other necessary provisions to the Viking camps, which began to swell daily with newcomers from other Viking armies hearing of this new life of ease. It's a pretty good situation. So they're flooding into East Anglia, and Edmund has promised to feed them. But he didn't expect them to stay. So now they're staying, and they're swelling. Thousands of them are coming in. They're building an army on their very shorelines, and guess who's feeding them? The English king. Okay, this isn't a good situation. Sounds like America. So East Anglians supplied food and all other necessary provisions to the Viking camps, which began to swell daily with newcomers from other Viking armies hearing of this new life of ease. When the winter months arrived, a time when the Viking armies normally returned across the North Sea and left the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to recover, the great army gave no hint of leaving. Throughout the long winter, the East Anglians served the appetites of the Viking army, supplying them with food, drink, and other gifts. Then, in addition to these provisions, the Vikings demanded horses for the entire army. Though the Vikings never fought on horseback, they had learned that a mounted army had the ability to strike even deeper and more swiftly into the British countryside, where rivers did not always provide an easy path. This last demand having been met, the Vikings finally marched on in the autumn of AD 866, leaving the East Anglians wishing they had been so lucky as to have only had their villages plundered and burned. From here, the great army, now more than 5,000 strong, not counting the innumerable non-combatant members of their camp, rode north to the kingdom of Northumbria. Whether there was truth to the legend of the death of Ragnar and the burden of revenge placed on his sons, or whether the wealth of the Northumbrian kings had caught their attention, the Danes were determined that their conquest of England was to begin with the Northumbrian capital of York. The target was well selected, a commercial center that was advantageously connected to the network of roads and rivers of Northumbria. York offered quick wealth and a strategic base for further conquests. But even more strategic was the date chosen for the attack. First, Ivar, remember Ivar the boneless? Ivar and Halfdan arrived in Northumbria with the kingdom, when the kingdom was divided by a cruel civil war between King El and his rival King Osbert. So they're fighting within themselves and as a result, totally vulnerable in this situation. So they're going to make their way up to the green, uh, which is Northumbria which uh, Scotland in the modern day is going to come across 
sort of hard to describe. There's a little outcropping on the left. It's, there's sort of a line that goes uh, across there. That's, that's where Scotland is now. Second, the Vikings launched their surprise attack on York on November 1st, All Saints Day, a feast day the Anglo-Saxon church observed in great earnest. This meant that the attack came when the city was packed with the wealth of those who had come to observe the feast, as well as when the city was least prepared to defend itself because the two warring factions were absent from the city. And the city itself, busy with preparing for the feast, was entirely distracted from thinking of its own defenses. So what's going to happen here, I'm actually just going to cut out. I know, it's terrible for me to do that. But it is so bloody, so evil, they're going to purposely choose a day of spiritual uh, celebration. So All Saints Day to the Anglo-Saxons in that time was a very, very significant and pivotal day in their calendar. And they are going to choose that day because they know that they're going to be focused on something and uh, it's going to distract them. And sure enough, that's exactly what's going to take place. And they're going to seek revenge on King El and they have a ritual sacrifice under their God. Okay, I mean, it's like so evil but what you begin to see at this exact point in history is like, all right, darkness has officially moved into this island. I mean, it's like scary stuff. And the nation, like I said, the seven nations uh, that make up the island of Great Britain, they're all thinking about themselves. Like, think about how they got all this power to go up north. It was King Edmund that supplied it all. King Edmund's a good guy. I mean, if, you, if I were to teach you on King Edmund, you're like, go oh, Edmund. However, Edmund is being played. He's thinking about his own preservation. Instead, he's actually going to lead the destruction of Northumbria. He's supplying them with everything they need to totally devastate this nation and come on in. And that's where you see the division of the ranks, just like in the church today. We have to work together against this evil and not compromise to say, well, as long as you don't harm me, Hitler is going to play the church in his day. And he's going to increase the strength of the church in Germany during World War II as long as they keep their mouth shut and turn a blind eye to what he's doing to the Jews. And if he'll turn a blind, if, they, if the church will turn a blind eye to that, then he will prosper them. You see, we cannot fall for the King Edmund trap where we prosper evil to preserve our own skin to the harm of someone else. It's a trap that the devil has used for ages and generations that self-preservation is the death of the church. The enemy is predictable. I know that sounds funny, but throughout all the ages and generations, he does the same thing over and over and over again. When you read uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, and Nathan's going to have a message, is that this, are you going to do next week? Okay, and so it's called The Nine Lies, and it goes through the predictability, the predictable patterns of the enemy. Like, he's done the same thing for, it's like the same lies, the same thing he whispers to Nehemiah, the same things he whispers to you. It is like outrageously profound to recognize. It's like, if you study Nehemiah, it's like you're studying your own soul and how the enemy works with you. It's like, huh, that's actually the enemy now. You can pin it. And this is actually a fact throughout all the ages and generations. We could predict exactly what's going to happen in the country of America. If we turn from God, if we turn towards our own ways, if we reject him, here's what's going to happen. And you don't need to be some brilliant guy to do it. You just say, this is what the scriptures say. This is the result of turning away from God. 
Study the ancient Israelites and you're going to see this cyclical pattern of judgment unto repentance, unto God's grace and mercy, reestablishment. Oh, there we go again. There is a pattern. And the key is that we're supposed to learn from the pattern. You know, good discipline. When you're a parent, you, you talk to your kids and you're like, the reason I'm doing this is so that you would learn. There is no delight that I take in discipline. But the reason I discipline is because I love you. And so what your soul is supposed to do is go, aha, when I behave this way, sort of like when I stick my finger in the light socket or the, uh, what's that little box with where you plug things in? What's that called? Outlet? When you stick your finger in the uh, power outlet and it goes, zzz, 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 then you are supposed to tell yourself, ha ha, I should not do that again. And that's what discipline is supposed to do. It's supposed to inflict a slight pain so it can help you avoid a greater pain. And yet, if you are getting the slight pain and you keep coming back and receiving that pain, what solution is there? Many of us have been corrected by the Holy Spirit, but we need to finally say, I get it. Enough of this. This stops now, and we need to repent and turn. So the enemy is predictable. 2 Corinthians 2 now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I usually say something quite different. I think we're very ignorant of his devices nowadays. Paul is so confident. In, the church of Corinth was a very unhealthy church. He's like, we are not ignorant of his devices. It's like, are, are you sure about that, Paul? I don't think we have a clue how the enemy works. And I think we are ignorant. What this is talking about is forgiveness, the importance of forgiving, lest the enemy takes advantage of us. Because he's going to take advantage if we leave the door of unforgiveness open. So if we leave that door open, he's coming in. But we're not ignorant of how the enemy works, so we're closing the door. We're not going to allow unforgiveness in our ranks, lest the saltwater bandits take advantage of us. The Angles and the Saxons. Now here's what's interesting. This nation, for 400 years, has now sort of become Angles and Saxons, right? This is, this is like the new, it's what, the ones that are going to be called English in the future, okay? That term hasn't come out yet. It's not a corporate England. It's seven nations. But they're made up of Angles and Saxons, which, will, which is where we're going to get our term Anglo-Saxon. And the Anglo-Saxons are, you know, that's the classic inhabitants of Great Britain, Right? And so, but these characters were barbarians and thugs when they first came to this island. They came with the same intent that the Vikings had. Isn't that an irony? And so as a result, here they are. They've been changed by the gospel 400 years earlier. And they've become civilized and they have decency and they have law and order they have respect for the elderly, care for the young. You know, all the things that come about from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Health, life, prosperity, but they have turned from it. And they have lessened in their strength. So it's just fascinating to realize this. Dr. Benjamin Merkel, the role of the pagan raiding army had been played once before on the island of Britain when several centuries before the Viking raiders, the Angles and the Saxons themselves had crossed the English Channel. Unconverted and bloodthirsty, these once pagan tribes had abandoned their homes in modern northern Germany and Denmark in the 5th and 6th centuries and had crossed over the island of, to the island of Britain, preying upon the weaknesses of the natives who had been left vulnerable by retreating Roman troops. Those turkeys, look at them. 
So isn't it interesting that here they're going to find Christ in this process. They're going to conquer this nation, but then be converted. And they're going to now become a house of uh, missionary uh, support and strength. And ultimately, you know, Patrick is going to come from their shores and change Ireland. You know, all these different things are going to come out of this time period. The pagan invasion. So now this is uh, Dr. Benjamin Merkel again. It was the establishment of the Christian church that turned the Anglo-Saxons away from a worldview that had been every bit as ruthless and cruel as the worldview held by the Viking raiders. The missionaries sent by Rome to Christianize the various warring Anglo-Saxon tribes had preached against and even given their lives in the fight against this very worldview. Even after an Anglo-Saxon church had been firmly established, the English constantly had to fight the temptation to slip back into its own barbaric past, a godless past ruled by the worship of raw power. Threads of this old worldview remained woven throughout the poetry and songs of the Anglo-Saxons. There could be no doubt that when the Anglo-Saxon church named the Viking raiders pagan, they did not mean people who have a different value system than we do. They meant pagan in its most proper sense. These raiding armies were full of warriors who acted like men without the gospel. It was a worldview known all too well to the men who named it as such, and it was a worldview they had rejected. These are men who don't have the gospel. Again, I am, I don't, I'm foreshadowing, I'm, I'm hinting, but Alfred is going to do certain things to, towards these barbarians that most of us in here would just say, kill them! Kill them all. Let's, if you have them captive, don't let them go because you can't trust them. They will betray you. If you let them go free, they'll just come back and attack you. And Alfred is going to respond very differently. He is going to show mercy. He is going to give Christ to barbarians. What? Don't do it, Alfred. Or should we say, thank you for the model, Alfred. So when we look at this evil, that is encroaching our world, it's very easy to just look at it and put a blanket over it and say, anyone that participates in that just deserves to go to hell. It's true. Anyone who participates in that behavior deserves to go to hell. However, that's the same with all of us in here. Every single one of us in here has participated in darkness, has participated in evil. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So be watchful how you wield that judgment. And to recognize that mercy triumphs over it. And that your care and concern for those that are encroaching and the powers that be. Now, I'm not saying show mercy to, the, to Satan's camp. That's already been judged at the cross. I'm talking about the puppets. Those that are being controlled by it. Like Alfred, our desire is to see them set free. But what they need is the gospel. The promised redemption. 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 14. I, I read through this so many times this past year because I saw it. I mean, I was, I was watching. I still am. I'm watching a nation that has a, a key, and the key is Jesus. And if we turn to Jesus and away from our wicked ways, if we stop trying to pander after the approval of public opinion, if we stop trying to be politically correct and we're God-correct, which is like, God, this is for you. I'm no longer just going to try and appease a dying world out there. I want to live for you. And if we would turn from our wicked ways, God will do something. 
So let me just read it, even though I know many of you have heard this this past year multiple times. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, speaking of the temple of God, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So Hezekiah is going to refer to this same concept in the same scripture when he is being invaded by three armies. In other words, when you're being surrounded by the saltwater bandits, there's something you ought to do. And when Hezekiah does this, and he calls a fast amongst his people, and they humble themselves, and they pray, and seek God's face, God does exactly what he says he's going to do here. And he heals their land, supernaturally. There's no other way of describing it. If you remember the story of Hezekiah going off to battle, that's when he sets his Levite singers in the front, and they go marching in. And it says, and the Lord set up ambushments uh, and that day. It's like, ambushments? And it's like they're all destroyed, all rooted. It's like, how did that work? Again, the Bible is the master of understatements. It's like, God, could you give me a little more detail? Uh, I mean, I get more detail on this, on Ragnar Harry breaches uh, than I do on that. I mean, come on, God, get, feed me a little more information. No, you just need to know that when Hezekiah turned, he repented, he sought God, he humbled himself, and he prayed then I did what I promised I would do. We have saltwater pirates, saltwater bandits that are coming against our nation right now, spiritually speaking. And we have some saltwater bandits in our nation who are seeking to devour this nation of the human variety. We need to make sure we know how to handle both. We need to know how to resist the spiritual, and we need to know how to give mercy, love, and grace, and more importantly, the gospel to those that are of the human variety, that are being puppeted by Ragnar, Thornbuck, Harry Breaches. In other words, this is a very real power, and it's an ancient power. It's interesting to think that the same demons that controlled Ragnar are controlling people today. Isn't that a weird thought? It's like the same demons that worked with Ragnar, worked with the, demon, worked with the Vikings, are the same demons that are on the earth today. They're ancient. They're very good at what they do. However, we hold on to an ancient God. He's called the Ancient of Days. And he is a master of all strategy. And if we would submit to him, instead of trying to reason in our own mind of how we can win this, if we would humble ourselves, and if we would turn from our wicked ways, and we would seek his face, and we would pray unto him, we would see God do something marvelous. You see, what's, what I love about this story is that God is going to do something marvelous. It's actually impossible what we're going to see happen. There is no way, at a certain point in this story, there is no way that anything good can come out of it. That's the way you feel. And that's not altogether different than the way you could feel if you were to look at our nation right now, speaking of America. It doesn't look good, and there's no clear avenue of reprieve or rescue. It's just like all you see is downward progression, and it can get really bad here. And it doesn't really matter how it turns out. Our job individually is to set our lives in God's hands. There have been Christian, or there have been believers that have lived in very dark times and yet have lived for God in those times. It doesn't matter the times. It starts here. This is the island of Britain, this body of yours. And you cannot allow the saltwater bandits access. So if you have breaches, close them. 
And then if all of us together as the body of Christ begin to live with eyes wide open, not being ignorant of the enemy's devices, and say, no, let's close these doors. Let's be a strong body again. It gives us strength to give an answer in an age of darkness. Father, I ask that you would demonstrate your power and your might on our behalf. I pray that you would gently show us if there, are anything, if there is anything in our life that just needs to be repaired, needs to be made right. Lord Jesus, that we would be able to walk in the light as you're in the light. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the lessons that you can give us from your word, from history. Lord, teach us, instruct us in the way we should go. We want to be like lights shining in a dark place. Lord, but we need you in order to do this. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.